Sassanax. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanax Files. This week, I am discussing part one and two of The Sapphire Brooch by Catherine Lowry Logan. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find The Sassanax Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow The Sassanax Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander, Season 7, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Parts 1 and 2 of The Sapphire Brooch. So we're going to talk about the sapphire brooch today. My plan for this is to discuss parts one and two with a few select things that I'm saving for my discussion next week. Bear with me if you think I missed something. Feel free to leave it in the comments, but chances are it's going to be discussed next week. The timeline for this book, I didn't really notice or I guess I guess I noticed but didn't really pay attention the first couple of times I read it, but there's a lot of time that passes over the course of this book and not just in the last little bit of the book, but overall, I mean, it starts out in what, October of 2014. There are big spaces of time, especially when Charlotte and Jack get back to 1864, 1865, where between chapters, you've got like two months that are passing. For the sake of all of your guys's curiosities, I went through and kind of tabbed some of the ages of the people as they start off with this story. Charlotte's 38. Jack would be 43-ish because he's five years older than her. Elliot's 52. Meredith's 44. Bram is 40. So Bram is older than Charlotte, but younger than Jack. If you're wondering, if you're like me, because whenever I read things like that, I always get curious on how old people are and where they all fit in in relation to each other. So that's kind of what we've got. But it picks up with the Battle of Cedar Creek reenactment and we get introduced to our lovely heroine, Charlotte Mallory. (laughs) She's not one of my favorite favorite heroines of the Celtic brooch series. She gives me major Claire Fraser vibes in that she (laughs) can't help herself when people need medical attention or are in danger and she just puts herself out there. (laughs) I definitely get frustrated at that a lot because she's a bit of a bleeding heart and doesn't necessarily think before she acts. And I feel like sometimes she does think before she acts and she just does it anyway. I find that part of her personality interesting because she doesn't really consider herself a risk taker at all. And she talks about these red light moments in her life where she she sits at the red light and she thinks, should I go or should I stay? Should I do the legal thing or should I push on the gas and move forward and help somebody who needs it? Part of me wondered if that's something that changes with her in her altered timeline, whether she's more of a risk taker in the original version of Charlotte Mallory and then she's more safe 
and less of a risk taker after things change in the second part of this book. So I was kind of curious about that, but I found it funny that she has to talk herself into taking these risks sometimes, according to her. I mean, she's a gutsy woman. She spent time in Afghanistan helping offer like surgical assistance and medical aid. That's just the kind of person she is. She's willing to charge into the fray to help people that need it. And I think that's something that her and Bram definitely have in common in that respect. He hates it that she's willing to do that. And he wishes that he could just wrap her in bubble wrap. But none of our Celtic brooch women are like that. Like you can't hold him back from getting into all the shit. I think particularly for me, the most frustrating part of that was the Richmond Petersburg Depot fire because she promised, she promised she would stay put and she would stay with Elizabeth. Yeah, no, you see how long that lasted. I guess it's all part of her character. She realizes the risk she's taking for sure. She just, the reward is better than the risk, I guess. So she's a surgeon in Richmond and she's not very easily intimidated, right? So I think that's what really pulls her into this world so completely is that her personality is kind of antagonistic like she doesn't mind getting up in somebody's face and being like that's not right and that's not the way that we're going to do things like look at the way that she handled the Richmond Depot fire which is why I'm so shocked at how she tolerated Henley for so long because I would have kicked his ass to the curb a long time ago and somehow she's tolerating him and I guess that's probably because she feels like she's getting something out of that relationship but she talks about how especially after she first brings Bram back to seek medical care and everything and the cops show up at the hospital. She's talking about how they were really trying to good cop, bad cop her and intimidate her into giving them answers. And she's like, yeah, you're not going to intimidate me. I don't know who you think you are, but I had professors in college that were way worse than you, bro. (laughs) She's in the medical field, which is predominantly male. I mean, and she has to earn her stripes as a respected member of the medical community. So she's used to having to stick up for herself and fight her own battles. I think that that's one thing that her and Jack kind of struggle with a little bit because he's very protective of her and especially coming from a more parental role in her life. He wants to fight her battles for her. And it's like Bram says, he does it very well. But Charlotte likes to fight her own battles. She doesn't like anybody speaking for her. And so I think that Jack realizes that about her as well. So there's a good give and take in their relationship that I really love. But like I said, at the same time, she's a healer at heart. And I think one thing that is really beautiful about her and Bram's relationship as a whole is that he sees what she sacrifices in caring so much. There was a beautiful line that he said, your heart longs to feed the world. But most of the time, though, you forget to feed yourself. So she takes care of other people at the expense of her own well-being. And I think that that is definitely something we see over the course of this book. She will give and she will give and give and give and give until she has nothing left. And I don't necessarily know that that's the healthiest strategy. And I guess looking at that from above, it's easy to see that, that it's a problem, but I don't think she views it as a problem. She's just got a self-sacrificing personality and maybe 
my tendency towards dislike of her character is that I'm I'm selfish by nature. I don't know what that says about me. I mean, I can admire it for sure. I just think that some self-preservation would be nice. And I think that most of the people in her life that love her feel that way as well. Her parents and the loss of her parents had a huge impact on who she is. When we look at the formation of this little family that the Mallorys have, we have two very different pictures based on the altered timeline that I'll get into in detail next week. I'm saving all the time travel stuff for next week, along with all the trial stuff. The character breakdown of Jack is also going to be next week. I will touch on her parents, though, a little bit because they have had a profound impact on who she is as a person. When we look at the fact that the Mallorys are an extremely prestigious family in the state of Virginia and that they've been involved in government and were United States senators on and on and on and on and on back as far as they've been in the United States and the United States has been a country. They've been involved in the government. So that's kind of bred in the bone a little bit for them. And I guess that aspect of public service is probably where Charlotte gets her tendency towards the medical profession. She didn't want to be a lawyer. Jack's a lawyer, or at least started out being a lawyer. And so she went somewhere different, but she also feels the need to take care of people. And I think that no matter which timeline we get, whether it's the one that we're currently faced with in parts one and two, or whether it's the altered timeline, you still get that family in that line of service, which I think is why her profession didn't change at all in her timeline, because she still felt that pull and she still ended up being a doctor, even though her parents were professors and teachers instead of public servants and senators. So the difference being that with the the family that Jack and Charlotte grew up with, their parents weren't around at all because they were constantly in Washington, constantly on campaign, constantly doing this, that, or the other. And so especially for their their dad, who he died when Charlotte was five and when Jack was 10. And that's something that we get at the end of the book. It's not something that we touch on in the beginning of the book. But Charlotte's mother really, really loved her husband. And he was the center of her world. And when he died, she really kind of lost touch with her parenting skills, I guess. And that impacted Charlotte and Jack a lot. And Jack was, that was his formative years. He had a mother, yeah, but I don't think he really knew, didn't see what it meant to have a dedicated and committed relationship once their mother passed also in office because she took over her husband's senatorial seat jack became charlotte's parental figure and she was only what a junior in high school i think is what it was when her mom died and so all through the re- the remainder of high school and college jack was the one that looked out for her that explains why charlotte and jack have such a close relationship i mean i'm close with my brother so i totally understood this relationship that jack and charlotte have but then to combine that with the loss of their parents at such a vital age really kind of shows you how they lean on each other. Their biggest fear in life is losing each other because they've lost so much already. And so you can see throughout this entire story how every time one of them is put in peril, it is 
stop the presses. We got to figure this out. You're not going to put yourself in danger. No, you're not going to put yourself in danger. And they just argue back and forth about doing what needs done because neither one of them wants to be put in a position where they would lose the other person. They have no qualms about putting themselves in harm's way, but watching the other put themselves in harm's way is unacceptable. And so this is where you get the butting of heads a lot. Like they're on the same page a lot, but when it comes to battle plans at all, they're just like, no, 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 no. I'll put myself in the line of fire. (laughs) Charlotte dealing with her mother's grief over the loss of her father shaped Charlotte a lot, I think. And we see a parallel in this story between Charlotte and her mother. Charlotte sees how much pain it caused her mom when her dad died, and she doesn't want to go through that. Whenever she has to go back and stop Bram, she knows that she's getting in deep with him. And she knows that If she goes back the second time, heartbreak is going to be involved. She keeps telling herself it's not us being in love. That's not what this is about. It's about retaining the integrity of history and making sure that Lincoln gets his immortal status. That's what she's telling herself it's about. What it's really about for her is that putting aside the terror of time travel, because you don't know what's going to happen. And there's a lot of uncertainty in that. And for a type A personality who likes to control all of her circumstances, that has to be maddening. Putting all of that aside, what her fear is really about is falling for someone that she can't have, that ultimately she knows it's not going to work, and putting herself in a position where she knows she's going to get her heart broken. And seeing how her mom was heartbroken, basically as far back as Charlotte can remember, that's terrifying to think that she could be shattered so far deep down into her core that she may never recover from it. That is one of her biggest fears moving forward after Bram takes the ruby brooch and goes back to his time. So there's definitely a a fear of commitment there on both sides of the Mallory. Um, Whether you're looking at Jack or looking at Charlotte, their issues with their parents have definitely formed these commitment issues that we see moving forward. For Jack, it's serial monogamy because he just floats from, from one relationship to the other without any serious ties. For Charlotte, it's just kind of an avoidance of serious relationships altogether and burying herself in her work. There's still that need for human connection that Charlotte has. And so that's where we get her taking up reenacting. It's this sense of community that you get. I didn't really understand what that meant until this past weekend because I went to this reenactment and there are these massive camps of people that they just camp and they do it historically accurate for three days, just roughing it sleeping on cots, cooking around campfires. And I did the candlelight camp tour uh, Saturday night and it just looked so fun. Like it made me want to take up reenacting, watching them have so much fun. There's this definite sense of camaraderie and relationship. Everybody's kind of floating back between different camp settlements and chatting and playing games and laughing, telling stories. It looks like a blast. And so for somebody who doesn't have a lot of human interaction beyond the job of a medical professional where, let's face it, 90% of the human interaction you have is 
putting injured people back together or helping sick people who aren't at their best. I can imagine that there's that pull for Charlotte to kind of just have normalcy in her life. She even says... It's later in the book, she's like, that that pool, that community, and that sense of belonging is why she became a reenactor, but that's also a similarity that she feels in the medical community that no matter where she's at or what she's doing, she's part of a medical community who knows that they serve a greater purpose and that they all have that bond in common to serve the greater good. So I love that, that you find these commonalities in these, these communities that you have, whether it's your job or your hobbies. Also, whenever you look at the reenacting side of things, Charlotte makes a comment that she didn't really know what she was doing by reenacting, like why she felt that pull to do it. And she says all these years she'd been so naive. She'd studied history and reenacted battles and believed she understood the war, but she hadn't. Not really. War was gut-wrenching heart-rending, and above all, deadly. Which, for someone whose entire purpose in life is to preserve life, walking into a situation where you're just surrounded by death all the time, death and injured people and sick people, it's got to be a virtual nightmare, honestly. You can see how that was traumatizing for her, just being landed smack dab in the actual battle of Cedar Creek. It's crazy to think about something like that, especially when you look at it through her eyes and kind of understand why she was so terrified to have to go back. But Jack also made a really good point in that you're not just playing war games. Like, that's not the entire point of you being there. What it is, is you paying homage to those that fought and preserving their memory, making sure that other people understand the sacrifices that were made for them to have the freedoms that they do today. So there's that side of it, too. It's not just about playing war games. And I I do agree with her to a certain extent that by reenacting, you think that you understand what you're what you're doing and what actually happened and yeah you may understand the battle strategies of it and you may understand the facts of it but you're still not in it and i think that that would make a world of difference last little bit on charlotte is her relationship with ken i love ken okay let's get something straight i'm totally with jack on this like how on earth have you never gotten together They're perfect for each other, but I do understand because I have a really good guy friend who we mesh on so many different fronts, but I have the same take on it that Charlotte and Ken do in the books is that we would probably kill each other (laughs) if we actually lived together, ever were in a relationship because we're so similar and we have so many things in common, but there are some sticking points that we're just complete opposites on and we're very much both type A personalities. We're not great at compromise and we do get in arguments and it's like, I just really don't think that we're meant to have anything there. And I think that's what Charlotte and Ken have. But that doesn't mean that Ken's character is not completely freaking amazing. And that doesn't mean that I don't love him to pieces because he can tell Charlotte exactly how it is at any given time. And he's basically the only one that she wouldn't punch in the face besides Jack. I really, really admire the fact that when she showed up three days later after just mysteriously disappearing with this wounded guy shot in the abdomen, all she has to do is call Ken and be like, gunshot victim now, explanations later. (laughs) 
And he does it. He just shows up. He's like, I just got home from a shift. But he turns around and he drives back to the hospital and he does the surgery on Bram. No questions asked because she's promised and there will be explanations later. And that's all he needs. He's just willing to do whatever she needs. And I I loved that. But also totally love that he's constantly trying to set her up with other people. He wants her to be happy. He wants her to have a life outside of the hospital. He has a good work-life balance where she doesn't. And he wants her to have that. I can see where it can get frustrating for Charlotte to constantly be hounded about something like that. At the same time, I love that Ken's so supportive of her and wants her to have a relationship and is willing to be like, look, you can't keep going like this forever. You've got to find a man and settle down or whatever. And I love that he was like, don't forget, I'll be your Mr. Good Sperm any day. But the Charlotte has this long list of astronomically impossible requirements for her sperm donor, for her child that she wants to have in the next two years. (laughs) I love that the fact that he has red hair is like a hard no for her. Like that's one, that's how strict her list is. Like even hair color is just like, nope, you have red hair. We're not having this conversation. And I did ask Catherine, I was like, inquiring minds want to know what the heck happened to Ken and she was like honestly I forgot about him but he did serve his purpose and we do have characters like that in this series Jim Manning is one of them that I I kind of mentioned to her when I was chatting to her a couple weeks ago where they do serve a purpose and then they just kind of float off into the wind and I'm just gonna assume that Ken got his happily ever after and has a couple of kids and a beach house and all of that jazz because I he's awesome and I really do hope that he's happy whatever he's doing. Lori says Charlotte definitely gets in people's faces even Elliot. Yeah she gives him what for. She is no holds barred. <laughs> She's like this polite southern lady but she ain't afraid to tell you how it is that's for sure. Angela said, I didn't realize there was a five-year difference between Jack and Charlotte. I thought they were much closer. Okay, so here's the story behind that. Because I figured that they there had to be a bit of an age difference between them just because... I knew Charlotte was still in high school when her mom died and Jack was obviously old enough to be her legal guardian. So I was very curious how much of an age gap there was between them. And I literally had it on my list of things to ask Catherine, but I wasn't done reading the books yet. And then later on, like in the back half of the book, he's talking about his dad dying. And how old they both were whenever his dad died. And that's where the five-year gap comes in. So yeah, there is five years between them. All right, Bram McCabe. I freaking love Bram. I got in a conversation or like a, a thread chat the other day about who our favorite Celtic brooch men were. It is impossible to choose. Let me just say, like, there are so many fan freaking tastic male leads in this series. But Bram is a really good one. And I have loved him from the time he came into the picture and the ruby brooch until now and beyond. He is such a complex character. He's so lovable. His sense of loyalty kind of outweighs his sense of right and wrong sometimes, but he really struggles with that on a deep and intense level. He values honesty. It's one of his pillars as a character, as a person. So whenever he has to kind of juggle the three, like honesty, loyalty, and kind of his 
sense of justice, that's where we really get these complex situations with Bram. I love his relationship between Kit and Cullen and that we kind of had that brought back into the picture in this book. Honestly, when I read that the sapphire brooch was Bram's story, I was like, oh my god, I need it right now. <laughs> like, do I have to read the second book? I want to just read the third book. But then I'm like, no, no, need to read the second book. I do not skip. That's a big argument, like the Outlander universe with how giant the books are that people like skip over parts they don't want to read. And I'm like, how can you say that you've read a book or you've read a series if you skip over parts of the book? So I won't get on my soapbox about it, but I wasn't about to skip the second book just for the sake of reading Bram's story, but I enjoyed every flipping second of it. Let's put it that way. Bram has an eidetic memory, which makes him very impressive. And so I kind of did a little bit of research into what an eidetic memory was versus a photographic memory, which is what Charlotte has. At least I'm assuming that Charlotte has a photographic memory based on her character descriptions. Like when she walks into a room, she envisions the room and then she goes blank, blank blink like she's trying to remember it for jack like she's taking pictures with the camera like click 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 i'm just assuming based off of the way that charlotte is describing these moments in her life when she says blink that's her taking a mental picture of her surroundings and so for bram he can literally read something once and just repeat it can literally take something apart and reassemble it and he was like oh well for technical manuals i normally read something twice and i'm like i'm sorry what <laughs> that is insane that people can do that when we look back at like the fact that he has an eidetic memory and then we look at some of the more frustrating moments for him as this book continues on it totally makes sense especially when we get to the moments surrounding the lincoln assassination when he's going to secretary seward's house and he can't for the life of him remember the sequence of events when things took place and in what order they took place and it's driving him insane. It's because he has this instantaneous recall of everything that he's ever read. And for the first time in his life, probably, he doesn't remember. It drives him up a wall. And I can imagine as somebody who basically they're entire purpose at the moment is to prevent this assassination, yeah, that would be extremely annoying to have your own brain fail you on top of everything else. <laughs> Lori says, I think fate plays with his memory then so he won't disrupt the timeline. Oh yeah, I have 100% thought the same thing. He blames his shock whenever he read it for his lack of memory, but yeah, there's something else at play. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the stones that aren't, aren't letting him remember things appropriately so that he can't put himself between them. Even more shocking to him, as we get further on in with his eidetic memory, he can't remember the sequence of the Lincoln assassination and all of all the conspiracy. But he also thinks that he knows everything that's going to happen with the trial 
and the result of, you know, the conspirators that were hung and everything. He thinks he's going to remember all of that because he has this instant recall. And when Jack gets arrested, I think he's concerned, but I don't think that he really thinks that he's in any danger. I don't think he thinks he's going to get executed. So when Charlotte and David come back and they're like, yeah, he dies. That's why we're here. That just floors him like on the ground, cannot believe what he just heard because he's so confident in his own memory. He's never really doubted it up until that point. And now to kind of have some big hammer laid down in front of him. This is something he didn't know when he thought he knew everything. Yeah, that really shocks him to his core. Terry says, I think that makes sense about the stones intervening. And even if you don't buy that supernatural element of it, you can also look at the fact of the extreme physical abuse that Bram took in the the time leading up to the assassination. I mean, he'd probably suffered a pretty severe concussion while receiving those beatings in Castle Thunder. So his memory might not be completely up to par and that also likely was part of the explanation on that front as well. Other little little fun facts about our friend Bram. He's a polyglot. He speaks Gallic, Latin, Italian, Spanish, and French. He's extremely wealthy. He inherited money from his father when he died, but he also owns a controlling stake in a California gold mine. So he has money running out his ears, okay? He has more money than he ever knows what he's going to do with. He has like five different houses, has traveled the world. He's a lawyer, so also, again, not hurting for money. And he is one of Washington's most eligible bachelors. He literally has women falling at his feet, but doesn't feel the need to have a relationship. He said he's never met a woman with the right mix of cleverness and sass to hold his attention. And, you know, I really got to thinking about how much of an impact his cousin plays on that. I was talking about his relationship with Kit and Cullen and how that was brought back into the series a little bit with Bram being one of our main characters. And honestly, Bram is so close with Kit and he loves her so much, but she is very sassy, very clever, a modern woman, somebody that he actually listens to. And he makes a comment about how he hadn't listened to a woman tell him what to do since his mother died. And then he's like, well, except for Kit, but she doesn't really count. He adores her so much. And for us to see the parallels between Charlotte and Kit, they are very much two peas in a pod, very much contemporaries. And I think if they knew each other, they would adore each other because they are very similar. And I really think that that's one of the key things that draws Bram to Charlotte is that she reminds him a lot of Kit. I also thought it was funny that when Jack and Bram were talking about being bachelors of a certain age, I mean, they're both in their 40s at this point, never been married, especially for Bram, who, you know, lived in the 19th century and marriage was kind of just a thing that you did. Like you settled down, you had a bunch of kids and you lived your life. And so for Bram to not have ever been married is kind of odd. He makes a comment about how, yeah, he has women constantly inviting him to balls and events and this and that. And he said he prefers to be the pursuer versus the pursued, which I thought was hilarious because Jack is just like, I hear you, brother. (laughs) I mean, they're in very much the same situation, just centuries apart because 
Jack is also the 43-year-old bachelor with more money than he knows what to do with. He's very magnetic and just general ladies' man. It makes sense that they're two peas in a pod. It always made sense for me that they would naturally fall in with each other. And we look at, you know, the life that Bram has lived and stuff. And when we first met him in the Ruby brooch, I think he was still trying to find his way a little bit. I mean, he was in his late 20s, early 30s at that point, And he was moving out to California with his best friend to start a law practice. It was their dream. He made a promise to William T. Sherman that in exchange for his services to set this letter in his vault in San Francisco and send it to a woman named Kitharina McLennan Montgomery in the year 2012, and in exchange for that service, if William T. Sherman should ever need him, he would come. And that is how he got thrown into this Civil War moil that has consumed the last four years of his life at this point when we pick back up with him in the Sapphire Brooch. So Cullen urged him to just stay out of it. Like, you don't owe him your life. It's not that deep. But Bram gave his word and he was going to keep it, even if it meant giving his life. Charlotte makes a description of Bram that I thought was extremely apt, so I'll share it here. She says... He was, above all, an honorable man, exuberant about living, a man so naturally sexual he intensified his own sexuality, a man both tender and intensely male who made her feel intensely female. So it's like this yin and yang, like they complete each other. And he's got this magnetic personality that he's just larger than life in a lot of ways. And I think that that draws Charlotte to him. I mean, it would draw any woman to a man, I feel like, but that is the kind of person that he is. And I really feel like that summed it up pretty well. And when Bram being this intelligent, charismatic, extremely, I say intelligent, but He's like, knock your socks off smart. (laughs) And I think we see that as we get to see his lawyer side in parts three and four, we really get to see kind of how his brain works, which is part of what I love about those sections. In that side of his personality, he's intensely curious about the world and how it functions. And so when he gets thrown into the 21st century, where everything's new, it's a struggle for him to contain his curiosity because Charlotte tells him, if you learn things that you're not supposed to learn, I'm not taking you back. Like, you'll be stuck here because I'm not going to send you back to change the future. I like the world that I live in. I'm perfectly fine with it. And if you can't kind of put blinders on and stay out of things that you shouldn't know, then I'm not taking you back. So he tries and he has this iron will. He learns things by accident, which is so unfortunate and something that would totally happen to me, I feel like. I loved the moment where he and Jack are in Jack's Land Rover, Range Rover, whatever, and they're headed back to the plantation and Jack gives Bram the smartphone and he was like, yeah, you can like learn anything you want to know with the touch of a button. He starts typing in, when will the Civil War? (laughs) And then before he can like complete it, he backs up. In his head, this is his narration, he says, deep inside his soul, he found the strength to resist. He returned the smartphone, Satan's tool, to Jack. Like he knows morally and remember, we're coming back to those pillars of honesty, justice, 
And, you know, he knows that it's not right for him to know, but his own sense of curiosity is driving him nuts. You know, it's that old saying, curiosity killed the cat. And God, if Bram's not the cat in this situation. <laughs> and I hate that he was he was perfectly content staying with his little book by whatever it was, Socrates or I don't know, something, some Greek philosopher. And then he opens up the front cover and finds this article that's the bookmark that's commemorating the anniversary of the the death of Abraham Lincoln and like all hell breaks loose. It was meant to happen. I mean, we know that's the way the brooches work, right? That once they get you in their cobweb, <laughs> it's just everything sticks together and things, the, the dominoes start to fall. And that's definitely what we're seeing with Bram learning about the Lincoln assassination. It's not that he was trying to know. He he wanted to go home. He didn't want to stay in the 21st century. So why would he do that? But then once he knows, he is like a dog with a bone in the fact that he's not going to let it go because once he knows, he knows that he has to stop it. His own personal sense of loyalty and dedication to the president his boss and also a really dear friend he's not about to let it happen once the dominoes started falling it was just an unstoppable force really jack and charlotte knew something was off about bram how can anybody from the 19th century just show up in the 21st century and not completely freak out and think they've been taken by aliens? <laughs> like, seriously. So the fact that he was so okay with it almost and, like, knew what was happening to a certain extent. I mean, clearly Jack knew or at least thought that something was up, but he wasn't quite sure what it was. And honestly, like, if my brother came to me and said that he brought somebody back from the 19th century and that's where he'd been for the last three days I would have been like what crack are you smoking like seriously so I understand why Jack didn't instantaneously believe Charlotte I can't honestly say that I would have either but the fact that Bram is just taking all of this in his stride despite the fact that he quite obviously doesn't know what any of this is or how it works it raises some red flags and then obviously we find out through Elliot and Meredith that Bram actually does know about the 21st century, about time travel. He recognizes certain things. He recognizes the iPad, I think it was, that, that Jack has, but Kit has a similar device. He recognizes the IV bag from when she treated Cullen and Cullen was showing Bram about it. All of this stuff. He recognizes these things and he knows that he's probably in a similar time to where Kit came from, but obviously he can't confirm that until much later whenever he realizes that Elliot and Meredith are around and contactable and that he has friends in high places, so to speak. It's very interesting to have that time travel connection, to have somebody brought forward into the future and not totally freak out, I guess. I don't know that Bram would have anyway. I mean, what do you guys think? If Bram didn't know that time travel existed, do you think that he would have freaked out or do you think he he would have at least, I think he would have at least maintained the illusion of control. <laughs> he seems like a very self-possessed person. So I don't know that he would have just freaked out. But I mean, I guess he could have. I, I probably would have freaked out. I'm not going to lie. I would have thought I would have lost my marbles probably. Anyway, so to go on with this kind of theme of the time travel knowledge, I thought it was very interesting to get it from his perspective whenever he's he's taking in the Land Rover and he's talking about rubbing his hands over the leather seat and taking in the sparkling glass 
and all of the textures that weren't familiar to him. They weren't metal or wood or stone. Those were the things that that he can identify and say, oh, that's what that is. And so to take in all of these things that are completely alien and not of his time, to see that through somebody else's eyes, it's very similar to how the perspective that we get of our time travelers whenever they accidentally go back to whatever time that they're in. So when we get Charlotte's perspective on her first time through Washington, it's kind of similar because there's still that shock value to it. It's unfamiliar, But you're also seeing something that historically you know existed. Like you're trying to make the ends connect and explain what's happening in your brain. But you're also familiar with the things that you're seeing. Whereas Bram is seeing things that are completely foreign. So to to get those explanations from a perspective of someone who hasn't seen those things is actually really interesting. There are things that give him context clues about history and the unfolding of those events after the Civil War. For example, Jack is explaining to him how, obviously he knows how inflation works, but in today's terms, how much would this vehicle cost versus, you know, back in my time. And the name of our currency is the United States dollar. Well, obviously for Bram, who lives in a time where it's the Union and the Confederacy and they are not united at all, (laughs) that tells him a lot. That tells him that eventually the war ends and eventually... All the states come back into the Union and they become the United States of America again. He's intelligent enough to draw from that and say, oh, well, that answers at least a couple of my questions that I have. He doesn't know when the war is going to end or how it's going to end, but he knows that it does eventually end. And I think he takes heart in that for sure. I talked a bit about Bram's relationship with Kit and Cullen, but... One way that his relationship with them is brought kind of into the foreground of part one of this story is through the appearance of Meredith and Elliot. He feels like he knows Elliot through talking to Kit so much. And he feels like he knows Meredith because she is the embodiment of Cullen. And he tells Elliot that multiple times is that talking to her is like talking to Cullen. Like they have that same way of looking at you and just being able to basically pick you apart and read you. And they're sometimes bluntly honest, but they're incredibly intelligent. It is. It's it's kind of just like looking at his best friend. So it's kind of nuts for him to see that. But he also recognizes that she has the best of Kit and Cullen in her, which is kind of what I was talking about in the last McLenna book club that I did, that she is. You can see it. The, the parallels between Kit and Cullen And all of those qualities kind of wrapped in a tight bundle and put in Meredith. And that that somehow is this perfect package for Elliot was just so perfect. It was a stroke of genius. One thing that I want to make note of, because I I didn't quite get to it in my talk on The Last McLenna, was Meredith's clairvoyance. It's becoming more and more pronounced as the books progress. When Bram shows up on their doorstep and is like, hey, I know you don't know me, but I know who you are. (laughs) And uh, that he came by way of the sapphire brooch. And she just looks around and she's like, oh, well, where's the woman? And he was like, what? 
well, where's the woman? If he came with the sapphire brooch, then obviously there's a reason that he's here. And if the brooches bring soulmates together, then that means there's a woman, right? <laughs> She's very confident in the fact, even before everything that happens in this story goes down, that Bram and Charlotte are meant for each other because the stones brought him back to the 21st century. And they wouldn't have done that if they weren't meant to be together. We learn more and more about the brooches and kind of how they work as the series progresses. But yeah, if Bram wasn't meant to come back to the 21st century, he wouldn't have come back to the 21st century. Meredith says before Bram goes back, this won't be the end of the Charlotte and Bram story. I predict this is only a crossroads. What lies ahead will be full of potholes, but if you're meant to be together, which I believe you are, you'll find a way through them, around them, and over them. And holy shit, if this story is not filled to brimming with potholes <laughs> and obstacles that these people have to face. Terry says Sarah Barrett has it too. I wish we would learn more about that part of Sarah. Why does she have it? And so this is kind of what I was wondering. So I was wondering if the Barrett line crosses with the Montgomery line at some point because Kit and Cullen do have three daughters, but also unless a granddaughter like Sarah and John's granddaughters or whatever is one of the one of the generations between Kit and Cullen and Meredith's generation, maybe. But yes, like Sarah has that clairvoyance as well. So I did really wonder if there was some crossover in the family lines at some point. It's just funny because when Meredith is questioning Bram about this woman that brought him to the 21st century, he's so emphatic that this woman is not his soulmate. He says, I can tell you emphatically, the doctor who rescued me and brought me to this time is not my soulmate. She has wild curly blonde hair and deep blue eyes and she wears god-awful clothes she calls scrubs she's small and very opinionated <laughs> and i think he has this disdain for her a little bit because she is so strong-willed and a man coming from the 19th century is not used to women having that kind of personality but at the same time like i said he adores kit and Kit is very much like that. Angela says, methinks he doth protest too much. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because Jack tells the same thing to Charlotte when she is like, he's not my boyfriend. <laughs> and Jack says, methinks the lady protests too much or something like that. So let's talk about Bram's career a little bit. When we last saw Bram in the Ruby brooch, he was headed out to California to start his law practice with Cullen. And then fast forward, what, 12 years? And we are in the midst of a civil war and he has very high expectations for himself. Right now he's in the middle of serving at the behest of the president of the United States. He is a uh, agent to the president. So he goes where Lincoln wants, when Lincoln says to go, and he does what Lincoln says to do. And that's kind of his job right now. But he definitely has aspirations for more in life. And he wants to go back to California to continue his law practice, but eventually has plans to become the governor of California. And 
ends up being a senator. He definitely has his life planned out to a certain extent, which is always why I thought it was odd that he never planned to have a family. Like that wasn't in his his 10-year plan or however long people make plans for these days. I just... I think that he has these two sides of himself that war with each other a lot. He wants all of these things and he aspires to them. But at the same time, the war has taken so much from him that he's just exhausted. He is exhausted and he wants to go home and he wants to be in his vineyards and enjoy the California air and not think about politics or Washington, or any of that. He just wants to rest and recoup and regroup. He knows eventually he wants to get there, but right now he can't see more than the 10 paces in front of him because he knows there's so much more that needs done before this war is ever going to come to an end. So I think right now he's just, he's really tired. While he doesn't have plans for a family or anything like that, that all changes when he meets Charlotte. Like you can see the evolution of him going from not wanting to settle down, not wanting a family to, oh, well, maybe I won't sell the Georgetown house like there's really it's built for a family and he can envision his kids there and he can envision this life for himself but that doesn't happen until he meets charlotte even if he's not admitting to himself that charlotte is the one that he wants to live in that georgetown house with and raise a family because he knows that that's not really something that's an option for either one of them but i do think it's it's interesting that that perspective on his life shifts when he really starts to fall for her. A huge part of who Bram is, is his identity as secret agent to the president, but also a huge part of that job is being a spy, running behind enemy lines and running interference, helping loyalists and kind of keeping lines of communication open, getting information from the Confederacy, so on and so forth. And it's a running joke in the book that, well, Bram must not be very good at it because he's constantly getting caught. But also we look at the fact that Bram is put in some really, really sketchy situations. It's not like he has an established life like we see with Elizabeth Van Loo. And he's running information. He is coming in from an outside source trying to establish a new identity. We see this especially before he gets arrested and put in Castle Thunder. And he is serving the purpose of helping loyalists escape the city of Richmond. I don't exactly know what he was doing when he was caught before um, he was shot and Charlotte found him in Chimborazo. He was gathering information and intelligence for President Lincoln about the state of the Confederate army and the government and kind of battle plans and all of that. I think that's what he was doing whenever he got shot the first time. It's just an insane amount of danger that he's being put in and in some super sketchy situations. Living the life of a spy is putting a lot of trust in a few people that they're not going to betray you. If you can't trust the people around you, you're hosed. Like, you don't have a hope in hell if you can't trust the people that are putting you in danger. And I think that for the most part, he does have a really great network of people around him with the exception of one person. 
And that person is the bane of his existence, Gordon Henley. That is the reason that Bram keeps getting caught. It's not that Bram is terrible at his job. It's that there's a leak in the War Department and his identity is constantly getting leaked to these people so they can find out who he is and where he is and arrest him. So it's not that Bram is bad at his job. It's that he's literally set up for failure. (sighs) It just frustrates me so much. And I'm going to talk about Gordon Henley a lot in part two. So as much as I want to get on my soapbox and rant about how much I hate that guy, I'm not going to. (laughs) But yeah, the war has cost Bram a lot is basically what we're saying. And that's a major theme in this book. But Bram says right before he goes back to 1864, he's kind of in his narration saying at some point in the past four years, he had become a soldier in appearance thinking, and behavior. He was no longer a lawyer, friend, cousin, nephew, uncle. He was a major in the United States Cavalry on assignment to the president. He picked up his hat and his gauntlets and mentally saluted his commander-in-chief. So this is his identity. He throws himself into whatever is in front of him. That's Basically, the only way to live as far as he's concerned. He lives his life with so much dedication to whatever cause he's fighting for that it consumes him almost. Which I guess you could look at as a character flaw as well that we were talking about Charlotte's lack of self-preservation. And I think Bram has that to a certain extent too, just kind of in the opposite direction. But they both have this self-sacrificing nature about them that frustrates the other person, but also gives them the ability to understand each other on a completely different level. Bram's dedication to the president is one of the key pillars of who he is. So you can understand when he discovers that Lincoln is going to be assassinated, he's not going to stand for it. Because not only is he dedicated to the cause that he's fighting for and he's loyal to him as a friend, but also because he can't just know that somebody's going to be murdered and not do anything about it. He has that sense of justice about him. He has to act. He can't just sit around and do nothing. And the fact that that's exactly what Charlotte and Jack are asking him to do maddens him. He's like, there's no way in hell I'm going to sit here and not do anything about this. And the fact that that's what you're asking me to do, like, I don't know if we can be friends anymore, basically. (laughs) It's kind of sad. Not kind of sad. It's really sad that this is Bram's story. Like, this is how it goes. That no matter how hard he's trying to succeed and change things and save his friend, he's set up for failure, basically, on so many fronts. Whenever he's talking to Jack about this struggle that he's facing with whether to save Lincoln or not, Jack's trying to teach him how to do a fist bump because it's an important rite of passage. And Bram says, I can do a fist bump, but it doesn't mean I belong here. I don't understand your customs or your jokes. Helplessness is emasculating, especially for a soldier. I've spent four years in a war. I've done things I'm not proud of. But I never doubted my manhood until now. I failed my president. I failed myself. I don't know why I'm here. It's more than just a sense of failure. This is his purpose in life. And if he can't defend those that he loves, that he cares about, and he can't preserve and protect, what is he doing? What is his purpose? It's a loss of identity as much as it's a struggle against his own moral compass. So it's a real, real hard thing that Bram is dealing with here. Angela says, I really liked that Bram seeing Meredith as the descendant of the two most important people in his life. 
I adored that. So cute. That's one thing that I really love about this series is the idea of lineage and seeing how certain traits get passed down through the generations. Even though there's new blood being mixed in with the old, you still get these core values and personality quirks passed down five, six generations. It's really cool. Terry said he loved Lincoln. I would want to do the same as Bram. History be damned. I mean, I, I completely understand where he's coming from. I, I understand where both sides are coming from because Lincoln's death had repercussions on more than just the people surrounding him. It impacted the world, the country. By saving Lincoln, it would have changed so many things. But on a more micro level, I understand where Bram's coming from in that this man prides himself on helping and protecting those that he loves to be put in a situation where he may not be able to do that for one of the most important people in his life. That is a huge battle with himself. So we'll talk about some of the history a little bit and some of the plot lines. This story picks up in a very similar way to the Ruby brooch and then it picks up with our male lead in a situation that's going to come full circle within the first couple of chapters. And then by the end of chapter seven, we are right back where we started with Bram being whisked away to the future, but from Charlotte's perspective instead of Bram's. And we get that exact same thing happening in the Ruby brooch with it starting out from Cullen's perspective. And then by a couple of chapters later, we're back full circle, but we're getting the series of events from Kit. So I thought that, that was a really cool parallel to kind of draw these stories back together. We're dealing with some similar characters, and I like that the format really draws us back into the time travel aspect of the series because we kind of got a break with The Last McLenna and we had a contemporary romance with Elliot and Meredith. So we're kind of getting back back into the mindset of things. But Chimborazo Hospital was the largest hospital in the Civil War. It was a general hospital in Richmond. It wasn't a prison hospital. It was a medical hospital for convalescing soldiers who had been injured on the front lines. So the way that the Civil War worked, you got injured or you fell ill or whatever, you were processed at the field hospital and basically triaged. They did what they could for you at the field hospital and got you to where you weren't going to bleed out or die immediately. And then they sent you on to the general hospitals, which were farther away from the front lines, oftentimes by rail, sometimes by wagon. And so Chimborazo was one of those general hospitals. The hospital that Charlotte worked at in Washington, D.C. is another one of those hospitals. And they were all over the place, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Atlanta. They would house thousands and thousands of soldiers. Chimborazo was kind of unique because when it was first utilized as a hospital, it was already an existing facility. It was actually barracks built for the Confederate Army that had been abandoned because the soldiers moved to the front lines. So they took over those existing structures. It no longer exists, but you can visit the grounds in the Chimborazo Medical Hospital, which is part of the Richmond Civil War Battlefield Park. That includes all of the battlefields surrounding Richmond. I know this because I just got back from there. <laughs> battlefields like Cold Harbor and all of those around Richmond and all of the significant historical places within the city itself. It's a really cool place. I didn't get to visit Chimborazo Medical Museum because I went to the wrong place. And then by the time I actually found where it was, they were closed. So sad face. <laughs> but... Yeah, it's kind of cool, Chimborazo Hospital. But it was also an extremely tragic place. Numbers aren't exactly accurate, but they're guessing that over 75,000 patients 
passed through the doors of Chimborazo Hospital over the course of the Civil War, and five to 7,000 of those passed away at the hospital. And a lot of the dead are buried at Oakwood Cemetery, which is one of two military cemeteries in Richmond. On average, Chimborazo hosted 4,000 patients at a time. So, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. It's a huge place. Chimborazo Hospital is where Charlotte rescued Bram from the first time. And the reason that he was there is because he had been shot while trying to escape after being captured the first time. They took him to Chimborazo because it was the most immediate place for him to go. And they didn't want him to die because they knew he had information that could be critical if they could get it out of him. I think it's interesting that what kind of started this whole thing was that Charlotte was trying to save Ramser after the Battle of Cedar Creek and kind of just got thrown into the mix with Sheridan, who is probably one of the worst people that you could get thrown into the mix with as a Confederate because he had no mercy for anybody. Like, this is the man that basically is responsible for burning the entire Shenandoah Valley during the course of the Civil War. It was brutal, okay? These people had nothing. And that's one thing that I really learned at the Battle of Cedar Creek reenactment. Maybe I'll have a live about it afterwards, like not as part of this book club to discuss it because I did learn a lot about that kind of stuff. But yeah, Sheridan is not somebody that you want to mess with on a good day. And this was definitely not a good day. The Confederacy had just ambushed his entire Union camp and killed a lot of his men. He was not going to be merciful. And so he threatens Charlotte and says, you're going to do this for me or I'm going to burn down your house. And it's not an idle threat. This has been done a lot in this area. So she knows he's not joking. Like he will go and burn down her house if she refuses. So she's between a rock and a hard place, but ends up leading her to Bram in this whole messy scenario that proceeds. They get Bram back. They get him healthy. I think it's interesting that his body kind of just springs back with the use of modern medicine because the bacteria that would cause infection and all of that, they're not, they have no resistance to modern um, medicine. And so he heals way faster than anybody's expecting him to. That and the fact that he just has a hearty constitution, as he puts it. So, yes, he recovers in lickety split. I think Charlotte completely underestimates who she's dealing with whenever she gets Bram back. Like, I think she's used to being one of the smartest people in the room. And not that Charlotte isn't completely intelligent and just brilliant and amazing, but she's met her match in Bram several times over. There's a part in, I think it is Bloodstone. They're talking about having the best chess players on the board for the clan. And they're saying that Bram and Cullen are probably the best chess players. You really see that in this book. He argues with Charlotte to a certain extent about being taken back. Like He's like, I don't belong here. You need to take me back. I have a job to do and I have to do it. Eventually he realizes, you know what? It's not worth arguing with her about. I'll find another way around this, but I'm not going to argue with her anymore. And so she thinks she's won. In reality, what he's doing is a strategical retreat for a better a better point of attack and man if he doesn't wallop her over the head with driving like 600 miles to Lexington, Kentucky, finding Elliot and Meredith, giving him his sob story about what happened. And oh my God, if he's not manipulating Elliot to a T, 
I love how he drops in all these little details about Kit and Cullen, really softening him up, giving him all kinds of like stories about their life together and their kids. It's all so perfectly placed so that when Bram's like, you know, Kit would be devastated if I didn't come back. Like, Elliot's gonna tell him no. Like, Bram is the entire reason that Kit went back to Cullen. He saved their marriage. It was his thinking and his relationship with Sherman that allowed that letter to be found 200 years later. Right. Angela says he is a spy. Exactly. Like, that's what I'm saying. He's not terrible at his job. He's a spy for a reason. It's just so crazy. The other thing that really made me laugh about that conversation was this. Kit and Cullen's biggest arguments have been over similar issues, talking about James Cullen riding a horse. Bram says, they're learning the art of compromise. Elliot threw back his head and laughed. Cullen must be teaching her the art of compromise because she certainly didn't learn it from her father or me. And so you get these bonding moments and you understand on a on a different level how adored Kit is. And that's one thing that Charlotte mentions later in the book when David and Cullen are talking about Kit. Kit is adored by these men, basically by everybody who knows her. And she yearns for that kind of affection and to be thought of so fondly. I feel like we needed this time at the farm to really start to get that clan vibe. I mean, we had Kit and Cullen's story, then we had Elliot and Meredith's story, and the family is just building and building and building, and now we have Jack and Charlotte and Bram. So we really do need this time, as much as it might have seemed superfluous on the surface, to kind of start getting these relationships going is is really critical, I think. So obviously Jack and Charlotte follow Bram back into 1864 and ridiculousness ensues in the form of Gordon Henley. And I also put all of the stuff about Gordon Henley in next week's chat so that we can kind of talk about the trial and all of that together with his character. So a lot of the plot points with Jack and Charlotte regarding Gordon and Bram and all of the stuff in 1864 will be next week when we talk about how that relates to, you know, the conspiracy and Jack being framed and all of that. When Bram is arrested again as a spy, and thus the comments about, is he really good at his job? Is he? (laughs) He is imprisoned this time at Castle Thunder. Not to be confused with the Castle Thunder of the same name in Petersburg. This one's in Richmond because, you know, you couldn't come up with a different name for your prisons in the Civil War. I guess you had to call them all the same thing. So Bram is arrested with a group of Unionists. I believe they were helping other Unionists escape the city of Richmond. They were at a bar or a tavern or something, and yeah, they they were all arrested. And they kind of just slid Bram in there under the name of Charles Jackson, which I thought was so clever and such a little nod because it's Charlotte's name and Jack's name. And it's also interesting that we get... Charlotte having an alias later where she uses or she assumes Bram's name as um, Charlotte McCabe because she runs into her ancestor that she's been impersonating. And of course, of course she does. We knew it was only a matter of time, right? You can't impersonate somebody and then go back to their time and be running in the same circles and not eventually encounter them. So 
Castle Thunder was operated from August of 1862 until April of 1865. And this is a prison that was notorious for its terrible, squalid, brutal conditions. It was so brutal, in fact, that it was under investigation multiple times by the Confederate government because the warden's and the keepers of the prison were so corrupt and treated the prisoners so terribly that they were basically being questioned about potential war crimes. So this is the prison that Bram is thrown into. I talked to Catherine a little bit and she said that some of the conditions were a bit exaggerated, but honestly, I could see how it could not be. From what I read about this prison, I was like, my God, this was an awful place. The capacity of this prison was 1,400 prisoners. And by January of 1863, it was housing 3,000 men and women. So people were just crammed cheek by jowl. Disease was running rampant. On top of that, you were having prisoners being tortured for information. And the solitary confinement dungeon portion of this was fabricated for fictional purposes. But, you know, it's not that far-fetched given what I'm reading about. And bucking torture was actually a, a very real thing and a very torturous thing. Basically, just prisoners contorted into these impossible positions, tied that way, and left there for hours so that whenever they were finally untied, their joints and their muscles were frozen. You just, like, couldn't sit up straight, couldn't move your shoulders, your elbows, your back was basically in a knot. And it doesn't leave any telltale marks. That's the thing. So even if somebody was claimed to have done this bucking torture, unless they found somebody in that position when they went to investigate, there's no way that they could have proved that it took place because it it left no marks. Lori said the South was guilty of very severe war crimes, much more than the North. I believe that. I really do. Angela's asking if the building is still there to tour. No, it is not. I believe it burnt down in 1874. So it was actually three different buildings. It was a tobacco factory and two different warehouses that they combined and converted into cells and holding areas for prisoners. There were three different floors and each floor had a different level of prisoners. So some were like war crimes, some were deserters, and some were like public intoxication and stuff like that. It doubled as a military prison and as a civil prison. I mean, and then on top of that, you've just got ungodly amounts of disease going through it. And unless someone was literally dying, they didn't even get moved to sick bay. And then once they got to sick bay, literally nothing was done for them. They were just kept there and left to die. It's just horrible. (laughs) It's horrible. Like reading some of this stuff and like I'm in the middle of doing research for my own book and reading some of the stuff that happened. It's just like, oh my god. One of the key historical figures that comes into rescuing Bram and the burning of Richmond that Jack and Charlotte meet is Elizabeth Van Loo, an extremely impressive woman. Just floored. Like, I would love to have met her. She really seems so amazing. She had Union sympathies anyway when the war began. And kind of her beginning of her attachment to that side was that she started, she wanted to take food and books and medicine to the sick and injured at Libby Prison in Richmond after the First Battle of Manassas. As she was doing this, she started getting information from soldiers and feeding it to other people. She was helping the Union soldiers escape. That kind of just morphed. This is all starting in July of 1861. 
I don't know how she didn't get caught, honestly, but I was reading one article where Elizabeth Leonard, who is the author of All the Daring of the Soldiers, Women of the Civil War Armies, she said that there were actually quite a few female spies in the Civil War and that they weren't really caught because it was perceived as an unladylike activity and like that sexism actually... (laughs) played a huge part in why women spies weren't captured most of the time, which I just was like, okay, you're arresting women like Mary Edwards Walker for being dressed as a man, but you can't take that extra step and then be like, oh, well, yeah, I guess women are spies and like be on the lookout for that. Like, I don't even know how many men Elizabeth Van Lu helped escape, but it was a lot. She's helping for like three years, helping men escape, feeding information and all of that. And then all of a sudden, in January of 1864, she provides some vital information to General Benjamin Butler. And her name starts to kind of float around and kind of gain some traction. People on the Union side now know who she is. By June of 1864, six months later, Elizabeth has a full-on spy network going on in Richmond with over a dozen agents of all different creeds and colors and sexes. They have five different locations all around the city that information passes in and out of that are basically like safe houses. She was one of General Grant's biggest sources of information from Richmond that was relayed to Washington. Like he relied heavily on the information she gave him and believed it so that after the war, she still lived in Richmond in a place where despite the fact that the war was over, there were many Southern loyalists that still lived there and her and her mother were judged very harshly for their participation in the war. They were a wealthy family at one point in time, but they used all of their means to help the North win, to aid these soldiers and provide medical care and help them escape back to the North once they were imprisoned. So they used all their wealth to help the North win the war. And then on top of that, they were ostracized after the war was over for the help that they gave the Union. So when Grant became president after Johnson, so Lincoln was assassinated, Johnson took over, and then Grant was elected after him. When Grant was elected as president, he gave back to Elizabeth and made her postmaster of Richmond, which helped her to have some sort of income to survive off of. But as soon as he left office, she lost the position and she was right back to where she started. So in the most beautiful case of what comes around goes around ever in the history of the American Civil War, I think, she relied on the generosity of the Union soldiers that she helped escape during the war. So she had a good close network of men that she had helped and their families and they would send her money to live off of. And that's how she survived until her dying day. I loved that. She actually um, passed away in 1900. But a little thing that is kind of mentioned, because Jack and Charlotte know the history of Elizabeth Van Loo, and when they tell Bram this, he agrees to set up some money for her, which I love that. And Jack says, you know, yeah, we don't really believe in changing history, but if making sure a woman is comfortable and not starving and destitute, I think I can get on board with that. And so, yeah, that was... 
that was a really good change to history that I think benefited her for sure. But she was just such a selfless woman. And so I love that Bram and Charlotte and Jack were able to give back to her a little bit because she didn't have an easy life after the war. And she literally sacrificed everything that she had for a cause that she believed in. And that's something that really comes across in Catherine's writing. I think she does a good job of portraying Elizabeth because she's even quoted as saying, I did little for a cause so large, but I pray I did all I could, is what Elizabeth says to Lincoln when he stops by to visit her. You really see that come through in the character that Catherine has put on her page. Richmond at the end of the Civil War was in Like, crisis with a capital C. We had barrels of flour going for $1,000 a barrel. Everything that was useful was either gone or being destroyed. What was happening was the Confederacy didn't want the Union to get their hands on anything that was beneficial that may help them win the war. So they were burning tobacco warehouses. They were burning cotton warehouses. They were pouring all liquor into the streets so that none of this could be sold, giving money back into the northern economy. Whatever the citizens couldn't take before the fire got to it was just torched. But of course, in true fashion, don't light a fire that you can't control because it ended up burning down like half of the city between six and eight hundred public buildings and private residences were burned to the ground during this Richmond fire. It was mass chaos whenever the city caught on fire. And I think that this is one section of this book that I can't ever put it down when I'm reading it. It is so fast paced. Like you can feel it. It's visceral. All the descriptions, whether it's them running down the streets dodging fire. Um, Charlotte's talking about how her dress basically was catching on fire and that's why she had to like rip the hem of it off. And then of course you've got all all the descriptions of what's happening in the Castle Thunder prison as well. So you really feel like you're in it with this. Whenever um, Charlotte first goes into the prison, there are some descriptions that I'm going to read that kind of just gross me out, but I'm going to read it because I think it's, it's fantastic writing. So it says, sturdy bars covered open windows, leaving the prisoners exposed to weather and temperature extremes. Dark splotches covered the dank prison walls. She hated to guess what caused them. Even the naked posts and beams were splattered with stains. Although she couldn't see the ticks, fleas, and rats, she knew they skirted the room, spreading disease. Even thinking about vermin made her scalp itch. Gross. Yikes. And then she's talking about the condition of the people within the prison that she's seeing. And she there's this one single line where she says their clothes were holding their bones together. That is an extremely powerful image. It's only a few words. But you can see how emaciated these people were. And they're probably in scraps of clothing anyway. And then they're exposed to temperature extremes on top of that. And then they're dying of disease and they've got rats crawling all over them and fleas and ticks and lice and... So you've got one extreme where people are just being tortured in solitary confinement. You've got another extreme where the sick bay is literally hell on earth. And so this Castle Thunder place is, mm, nope, really bad. And she manages to worm her way into solitary confinement by bullying her way through like she's so good at. 
So she finds him and it literally takes everything in her to not kick the guy in the balls that did this to Bram. Like she knows who it is. She knows that it's this asshole sergeant that barges in whenever she gets to his cell. And I love that she said that she has met the one man that she would forsake her Hippocratic oath for and let die if he was ever like gut shot in front of her and there was something that she could do to save him. She wouldn't. She'd walk away. That says more about how she feels for Bram than anything we have read so far in this book. I mean, yeah, we know that they love each other and we know that there's that connection. But Charlotte Poole as a doctor, as a medical professional, and her Hippocratic Oath are at the core of her being. So for her to say that she's met the one person that she would forsake that oath for and that that is the person that's responsible for doing this to Bram really tells you how protective she is over him. And vice versa, like when Charlotte shows up and Bram realizes that it's Charlotte, he's in bad shape. Like he can't even stand. He's been flogged. He's been beaten. He's been put in this awful bucking position. So his muscles are all cramped up. He's starving. But when he sees that sergeant make a lunge at Charlotte, it kicks into overdrive. He wants to protect her. He can't because he's shackled at the ankle. But his need to protect Charlotte overrides all of his other instincts and all of his physical discomfort. And so we really start to see that, again, these parallels between these two characters that I talk about a lot in these books that I think it's a subconscious decision whenever you're building the world of these characters, but you really see the little things included and how they're written and how their worlds collide that show the similarities in their personalities and how that kind of weaves their stories together. Whenever Charlotte leaves, this is Bram's narrative, says Bram willed himself not to breathe, not to respond in any way. If he could react, though, what would he do? Wring her neck or kiss her? He'd kiss her and then he'd wring her neck and Jack's too. So he's still Bram. He's in there kicking and clawing and fighting his way through it and... That is one thing that we can really say for him. And and Charlotte recognizes that in him from the moment that she meets him in Chimborazo, that she can see the fire in his eyes and his desire to live is what fuels her to take the steps that she does to take him back to the future and to save him because if he's willing to still fight, then so is she. But we get that similar echo going forth into this story. So we see it in the Castle Thunder stuff. We see it with President Lincoln stuff after the assassination when she she goes into his room and finds the revolver. He's hidden in the chair and she slaps him and she said, I didn't rescue you for you to throw your life away like this. He said, I didn't ask you to save me. And she said, no, but a man that loved you very much sent me to save you in Chimborazo and you're going to throw your life away like that? Like he wouldn't want this. This zest for life that they both have kind of tends to refuel the other person at their darkest moments. And he kind of serves as that beacon of light for her when she comes back and she's really just at her wits end because of what's happening with Jack. So they are really the anchor point for each other a lot in this series. I was talking to Catherine about it because we were talking about the differences in the different couples because there are differences and they are soulmates. And so inherently there are similarities between their relationships. But one thing that sets Bram and Charlotte apart, I think, is that they're separate entities from each other. And we see a similar give and take in Elliot and Meredith's relationship because they were older when they met and they did have their own lives already. 
there are certain couples in the series, I won't name names or spoil plot lines, but there are certain characters and, and couples in the series that are much more dependent on one another than others. And Charlotte and Bram definitely lean on one another, but it's kind of like the parts of a car, I guess. You could look at somebody like Kit and Cullen who are different parts of the same component. So maybe like an engine and a spark plug. What you've got with Charlotte and Bram are like gasoline and tires. They're separate items that help hold the whole thing together. And they work better when you put them together, but they're also their own entities unto themselves. And so while they can function separately, they're best when they're together. Whereas other couples, they're past leaning on each other like they are the same person and they can't function and do their thing without each other. And so I think that that's kind of what sets Bram and Charlotte apart a little bit is that they both know who they are without the other person and they're okay with that. And I think that that's the kind of relationship that Charlotte would have to have with anybody because she's so dedicated to her job that she's not about to give that up for anybody, even Bram. Her partner needed to understand that that's who she was and that it was still going to be a very important part of her life even if they decided to get married and even if they decided to have children she wasn't going to give up being a doctor i think that was very critical to whoever charlotte found in a life partner that they were okay with being their own person separate from the relationship that they had together there's so many different things about their relationship that just are really maddening but also understandable <laughs> at the same time like i understand why charlotte wouldn't want to stay with bram wouldn't want to give up her life I just feel like if you love somebody that much, you have to have a will of steel to give them up for the sake of everything else in your life. It's just you have to admire her a little bit, honestly, for having that kind of integrity, I guess. I talked about the the depot fire a little bit and how maddening it was for me to <laughs> to watch Charlotte run into that fire time and time and time again, especially when she swore that she would stay home and be safe. And that's where Bram and Jack thought she was the whole time. <laughs> uh, sometimes I want to smack her. Anyway, but they do eventually find her. And one thing that is so remarkable about this story is that I talked about the fortitude and the iron will that both of these characters have in Bram and Charlotte. But we see the physical embodiment of that in this scene because Bram has literally been tortured and imprisoned for the better part of a week or two weeks at this point at least maybe three because remember how I said a bunch of time passes so I'm not quite sure how long he's been in prison but he literally has nothing left to give and Charlotte has been dragging men out of this hospital for however many hours and again she has nothing left to give but they keep going and they keep going until Bram finds her and throws himself out a window with Charlotte in his arms right as the roof collapses it's very dramatic but I think what's important to note about this entire situation other than the fact that Charlotte's agonized by the fact that she couldn't do anything to save that final soldier which was such a heartbreaking moment and such a 
terrible like mental picture to have because I really do just picture her with this legless soldier pulling him through the hospital and she just has nothing left to give and there's no way that she's going to get them both out and his screams as the roof comes down on him it's just I can understand how that would scar her for life and Charlotte and Bram are both going to carry that night with them for the rest of their lives because Charlotte for the man that she couldn't help and Bram with the nightmare image of watching that roof cave down on and almost kill the woman that he loves. It was his worst nightmare, not being able to help her. So they'll both remember that moment forever. This was a defining moment in their relationship. But more than anything, I don't think Bram ever expected to make it out of that fire. Like all he thought about was holding her as they died and like being together in their final moments. When they do survive, it's like they're rising from the ashes into these new people with new purpose in life. As much as they were fond of each other, when they they rise from the ashes it's almost like they're more entwined than they ever thought about being like they're one now and despite how much they're gonna fight against it for the next three four however many years it's there between them and it's not going anywhere and so i think that is when it's kind of solidified for them that they're not just fighting for themselves anymore it was really beautiful like that whole metaphor being reborn the reason that Jack and Bram didn't get back, <laughs> so part of it's their fault. Part of the reason that they didn't get back to the Van Lu house when they were supposed to and Charlotte went looking for them was because they were looking for the Confederate gold, which isn't it still missing? Like, I didn't have time to research this at all, which I know... <laughs> Seems a bit odd because I research everything. Pretty sure nobody's found it yet. I mean, not in, in the series at large, but like out in the universe. I'm pretty sure that I read an article about them looking at Lake Michigan or something. I don't know. I'm going to have to look into it. <laughs> Anyway, so it's still out and about, but that was Bram's mission. Like, that was the whole reason that he was freaking in Richmond to begin with, because Lincoln wanted Bram to gather intelligence and capture the Confederate treasury, because he knew if the Confederates didn't have any money, no reserves, their defenses would crumble. They would have no no economy, basically. That was Bram's reason for being there in the first place. And so despite the fact that he's been through everything that he's been through in the past couple of weeks... He's going to eat his worm-ridden cornbread, drink Jack's coffee, and run after the gold. He's freaking insane. Like, the man is the energizer bunny, I feel like. Jack punches him in the jaw, tells him he's crazy, and is like, you've got to be fucking kidding me, bro. Like, are you serious right now? You just got out of prison. You need to go let Charlotte look at you. <laughs> like, you're being crazy. And so I'm going to read this section because it's one of my favorites, but I got to find it. So. so he says, have you lost your fucking mind? Jack sputtered. You couldn't even stand up this afternoon and now you're running down the street to go blow up a bridge? A fist came out of nowhere and crashed into Bram's chin. He landed hard on his butt. He stared at Jack, shaking himself hard. What the hell? Jack put his fist on his hips and planted his feet. Because you're acting crazy. Tell him, Gaylord. You can't go blow up a bridge. You don't have time. You don't have the stamina. You're not Superman and someone had to knock some sense into you. Bram got to his feet, growling at Jack with steely green eyes. I'll forgive you this time, but don't ever do it again. I didn't claim to be a Superman. I have a job to do. Go home. Not a Superman. Super... Oh, damn it. I told you, I'm not leaving you. If you try to stop me again, Gaylord will tie you to a tree. <laughs> Freaking love. Love. 
Jack and Bram. <laughs> I never claimed to be a Superman. Not a Superman. Super. Oh, damn it. Uh, I think that's probably one of my favorite scenes of this entire book. Not gonna lie. Once they get back to Washington, the assassination becomes the primary topic of discussion. You have to understand that during Lincoln's entire presidency and went after he got reelected, he was constantly being threatened. The assassination threats were a weekly occurrence. And so he's pretty much numbed them at this point. And so when Bram and his uh, security team are like, you know, you need to be more careful. Don't ever go anywhere without an escort. Somebody's threatening your life and you need to kind of just stay in the White House. Lincoln's not having it because his whole philosophy on it is that taking himself out of the public eye or beefing up his security team is showing that he doesn't have any faith in his people and that he needs to show his confidence in the citizens of the United States. So that's kind of his philosophy on it. It definitely freaked Mary out, his wife. And she, like everybody else, would beg him not to do the things that he did because it put him in harm's way. But he had a firm grasp on what was right and wrong and what his responsibility was to this country. And nothing was going to stand in the way of him accomplishing that goal. So I think that's what makes him one of the most admirable presidents, honestly, because there was so much pointing him in the opposite direction, telling him to turn back. And he just kept trudging forward, no matter the cost, because he knew it was the right thing to do. And it really kind of puts a twist on things when you look at the other side of it. And that's something that I've really been doing lately, because the the book that I'm working on takes place in a border state during the Civil War. So I've really been looking at kind of both sides of things and how people in the South viewed things versus how people in the North viewed things. And what it came down to, especially for a lot of people in the border states, it wasn't always an issue of slavery. And for a lot of people, it, it wasn't slavery at all that forced their hand in their opinion or that they felt like they needed to put their foot down and stand against the Union because what they really felt was the issue at hand was that Lincoln was impinging on state rights and that he was forcing the federal government's hand and kind of infringing on the constitutional rights of the people. So it was more so a matter of personal conviction in a lot of ways. It, it wasn't these big ideas at first that really were the catalyst to the Civil War. Even for Lincoln, it was personal in a lot of matters. This is something that we see happen on a regular basis over the course of basically any research that you do, any firsthand accounts. And I think that it really comes across especially in this book, like Lincoln has really made a human character. And I think we get that through his friendship with Bram. We really see like his fondness for Bram, Bram's fondness for him, how they interacted together and kind of what the relationship is and was with him. Because a lot of times when we learn anything about Abraham Lincoln, it's from, you know, stories of people that met him or historical record. And we don't really know the man underneath. I, I really wish that he had kept a journal or something that we could read because I think it would be so interesting to get into his headspace a little bit. But yeah, I, I really do like this portion of it when we kind of get some firsthand account of Lincoln and, and kind of how he approached life. That was part of what I nerded out about in this book was like, we met so many different people. We met General Sheridan. We met Lieutenant General slash President Grant. He's not president yet. President Lincoln. Elizabeth Van Loo. We met so many people. I was so nerdy. It was great. <laughs> One thing with the assassination, obviously it's what's been driving the plot forward. It's what's 
sent Bram reeling back into 1864. But Bram also kind of has his own moral code. And he's not a cold-blooded murderer. And and Jack kind of, you know, says this to Charlotte. She's like, he's like, look, I know you're afraid that he's just gonna like haul off and murder Booth in his sleep, but that's really not who Bram is. Like he would never do something like that. It's much more likely that he's just gonna try to convince Lincoln to not go to the theater to beef up his security, like kind of plant information. That's much more his style. So you really shouldn't be worried about him just killing him. And that's exactly what Bram proceeds to do, to urge and urge and plant information in the form of like security reports and information leaks, personally plead with the president to not go to Ford's theater. Obviously, it all comes to naught. You know, you can't change history. And we learn much more about the hands in that cookie jar <laughs> later in the series. And, and we'll definitely talk about it as the book clubs progress. But I don't think it ever would have happened. I don't think that the powers that be would ever have let Bram change the future that much. I just don't think that the brooches, if everything that happens is meant to happen according to the brooches, then everything that didn't happen wasn't meant to happen, as convoluted as that may sound. So I don't think that Bram ever would have succeeded in changing history that much. Now, for sure, little things can change all the time, and they do in the brooch books, but something as huge as this, like there's no way that that ever would have been accomplished, I guess. The description of the assassination and the corresponding events, both for Lincoln's assassination and the assassination attempt on Secretary Seward, all of that has such visceral descriptions. Like you could just put yourself in the room or in the street and having Jack there, I think was a brilliant move on Catherine's part because he is a writer and he does have a way of like poetic describing things that really kind of aid this whole almost living history type account that we're getting because you're getting somebody who knows what happened and has read about what's happened and has grown up in Virginia and is a lover of history and literally knows every detail of what occurred that night but you're watching them witness it in real time. He describes it as almost an out-of-body experience and he says I was the only person there who had read the script and knew the storyline. It all happened as history recorded and everyone played their roles perfectly. Jack's voice fell to an anguished whisper, only it wasn't a play. It was real and the bastard killed one of the greatest and finest men to ever live. He accounts exactly what happened when it was either a general or, or some sort of officer in the audience stood up and said, it, will nobody stop that man? And then one of the actresses on stage says, he shot the president and like all of these things are happening as Jack is perceiving them. I mean, of course, there are all kinds of historical record of what happened that night because there were so many people there to witness it. But to get that firsthand is really just there's something so fascinating about reading that. And I think that's what draws us to to reading like personal accounts. There are so many from the Civil War era, which I was trying to like filter through all the different firsthand accounts of different battles and journal entries and letters. It was such a well-educated and everybody, everybody wrote everything down back in like the Victorian era and like the 19th century. 
And so it's a very well recorded time in history. So it's like a researcher's dream, I feel like. So Gaylord is to General Grant what Bram is to President Lincoln. And so that explains why they work together a lot. And I think that because of their ranks, Gaylord defers to Bram a lot. But yeah, Gaylord is directly under General Grant. And so that's why they are both on this mission together to go look for the Confederate gold. We're going to wrap up this with the topic that everybody wants to discuss, which is um, Charlotte and Bram. So we're going to talk a little bit about their relationship. We've talked a lot about what makes them individual characters, but I love talking about them as a couple, as I do with anybody in the Celtic Brooch series. Charlotte has a quote which says, I read a quote once which said something like, lovers don't finally meet somewhere, they're in each other all along. It's how I feel about you. You've always been a part of me and always will. First off, all the hearts. I love them. Catherine, but didn't Gaylord say he came with Bram? Yeah, I mean, they work together a lot, but Lincoln is not I mean, Lincoln is Gaylord's boss because Lincoln is Grant's boss. But Gaylord is like a special agent for Grant, personally. They work for the same team, I guess, and ultimately have the same boss. But Bram kind of skips a level. Like, he's directly under Lincoln. And so is Grant. Grant is directly under Lincoln because he's the lieutenant general of the Army of the Potomac. So he is over the entire military. He is the only person other than George Washington who's ever been given that honor. I don't know what today's rankings look like, but up until that time, the only other person to hold that rank was George Washington. So Grant literally only answers to Lincoln. And so Gaylord is directly under Grant. Like, he works specifically for him in the form of espionage, I believe. I think it just so happens that because Bram is so entwined with what Lincoln wants, that Gaylord is Grant's presence on the ground because Grant can't be there to do the things that Gaylord does. I think it just so happens that Gaylord and Bram are often working together on the same things. So, Charlotte and Bram, um, I talked a little bit about whether they do or don't want families. And I think that Bram was kind of unsettled on it. And him and Charlotte have a very interesting conversation because Charlotte wants kids, but she's getting to an age where she's worried that she won't be able to have kids. So she's planning on having her eggs frozen to conceive a child within the next couple of years. Bram is planning on settling down after the war and having some kids. His thought process on this is so screwed up. I have my law practices and my vineyards. You have your hospital and patients. We both have lives with purpose. From what Jack says, your patients and students love you. If you can have a life with love and purpose through your work, it stands to reason the same is available to me. In this whole conversation that they have, he mentions the only reason that he wants a wife and kids is so that he has somebody to mourn for him and pray for him when he's gone. Charlotte's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're looking at this all wrong. Like the whole point of having a family is to enrich your life while you're alive. And to live life to the fullest. It's wackadoodle to me that like this is kind of his thought process on it. I'm like, what? Seriously? And I think that's probably just because, you know, his mom died when he was little. His dad's been dead for a few years now. He's separate from Kit and Cullen. And I really think that he's forgotten to an extent what it's like to have people around you that love and support you. So I don't know that necessarily he feels that way. I feel like he's just forgotten what it's like to have happiness and contentedness in his life. And I think that he finds that with Charlotte ultimately. But it's so crazy to me that that was kind of his 
perspective on life. The effect of the brooches is kind of interesting because this is the first time in the series and one of the only times in the series that the brooches are being fought tooth and nail. Both parties are resisting as much as possible. I asked Catherine, I said, how much of the pool soulmates feel is the brooches versus their actual connection to each other? I'm particularly curious on what this says for Bran being able to hold out for so long before going to Charlotte. Because if it's this magnetic pool, like, does that say more about his own willpower in the situation than it does about anything else? Like, I'm really curious. And so she answered, since the brooches seem to control time, he he could have returned to California to settle his affairs so he could go to the future to be with Charlotte. And while it might have been a few months for him, it could still have been three years for Charlotte. The real reason I made it three years was because I wanted Lincoln to run to Bram and yell, Daddy! If I had understood the brooch properties, I could have sent him a lot sooner and have him arrive three years later in Charlotte's time, which would have been better for Bram. For the sake of the family like aspect of it, yeah, it does suck that Bram held out for so long before going to Charlotte. But also, I think he needed that time. Like, he was not the right person to be with Charlotte at the end of the war. He was really damaged. And he was really struggling with who he was. And I think that he wasn't the right version of himself to be the best person for her and for their child. And so I think that he really needed time back in California to rest, relax, recuperate, to heal. And that he came back when he was supposed to. That's what I think. Kit tells him. She's like, if you're feeling the pull to go to her now, then you need to go. Because he even says, like, I think about her now more than I did back then and it it gets stronger and stronger as the years go by i definitely think that he needed time to heal before he went to her as much as bram and charlotte kind of have this pull towards one another they both have things in their life that are keeping them in their own times somebody was saying earlier like i think they have their own lives and that it's kind of just they each have their own reasons for staying where they are and they're both established so as much as they're drawn to each other that's what sets them apart that they're willing to sacrifice being with the other person for the direction that they think that their life should take. And so I think that that more than anything is what separates them from all the other all the other couples. It's also what drives Jack up a wall and I am right there with him. He's like, you're in love with him and he's in love with you, but you won't stay and he won't leave. So what is the point of all of this? Like, somebody needs to budge. It's irresistible force meets the immovable object. Like, somebody has to budge eventually. But I I do. I get both sides of it because Bram has his whole life ahead of him. He's got career plans, like we were talking about earlier. Charlotte is a modern woman. And as much as it would be difficult for her to give up the idea of modern, modern medicine and being able to treat people, I think it's also a really huge leap to ask someone to take to jump from the 21st century to the 19th century and give up all of the rights and possibilities of a future that a woman has in the 21st century versus like the opportunities that she has in the 19th century. They're just not there. And I think it worked for Kit because that's kind of the world she had anyway. Like that was her life that she was meant for and she just returned to it. For Charlotte, it's completely different and it just, it's not the same for her. And so I understand completely why she wasn't willing to stay in the past. 
I did ask, though, just to satisfy my own curiosity, if Charlotte had decided to stay in the past with Bram, do you think Jack would have stayed as well? And she said that she doesn't think he would, but she thinks he would have kind of taken the brooch and kind of come and gone to visit. And I was like, yeah, that's probably accurate. Although I could easily see him staying just because he loves Charlotte so much. Because he really, besides his books, he doesn't really have anything left for him in the 21st century of Charlotte had decided to stay. So I could see him staying. But I I definitely think that's a good and viable option for Jack as well to just time hop every once in a while. Just go back and forth. Instead of going to the mountains to write his book, just visit the 19th century for a writer's retreat. Whenever Bram and Charlotte decide to go to the Georgetown house after they get back from Richmond, I think that was time that they both really needed. It was the first time that they were able to just be alone and kind of discuss their relationship, get to know each other on a more personal level, obviously become physically involved, which is something that they've both wanted for a long time. Like I said, whenever they were involved in the fire and they survived the fire, which is not something either one of them expected. They were reborn in a lot of ways. They kind of embraced that relationship that they had because that's something they weren't, they they just weren't willing to process before. And this is when Charlotte starts to plead with Bram, please come back with me. Please come back with me. She's starting to realize that she is way more attached than she ever wanted to be. And I think that, that he's realizing the exact same thing, that it's just not working for him to stay removed from this situation. Like the the more they're together, the more he's beginning to realize that they're becoming inseparable. And that's something that Bram feared the most. Whenever it was even suggested that the Sapphire brooch was there to bring him and Charlotte together, it's the reason that he wanted to leave because he knew if he stayed and he knew that if Charlotte came after him, that the the brooch was going to start weaving its web and they were going to get entangled and it was going to be very hard to detach themselves from the situation. So that's one of the reasons that as much as he was prepared for Charlotte to come back for him, he was angry at her for coming back because he knew what was going to happen. I mean, he watched it happen with Kit and Cullen. He watched how hopelessly entangled they were after such a short time together. And he knew that that was going to be a similar fate for him and for somebody that had so many plans. And for her, the same way, for someone who had their whole life planned out, that's very inconvenient. After the fire and after their night at Georgetown, I think that they finally realized that they're irrevocably entwined with one another. And it's like when Charlotte tells Jack that they're going to spend this weekend together, he says, Bram will never be able to give you what you want. So lighten up and enjoy the party. Enjoy the romance. Enjoy the sex. And when you ask him to go home with you again and the drama starts, be prepared because he's gonna kiss you goodbye. Being a very, very big brother-esque in that advice, but nonetheless, just, it's heartbreaking. And and Jack sees it coming, and Charlotte sees it coming, and Bram sees it coming. Like, they all know it's gonna happen. And despite everything, it's just freaking train wreck that you can't look away from basically 
so Charlotte asks Bram to come back with her, and obviously he's he has no interest at the moment. He's just like, no, you know I can't come back with you. My life is here. Then he makes the very interesting move of giving her his grandmother's sapphire engagement ring. He doesn't actually propose to her, but it's very clear that that's his intent. Charlotte said, I would marry you this minute if I ever thought you had any intention of returning to the 21st century. But she also insinuates, I don't think she does it intentionally. Like, I don't think she did it to hurt him. It's just like her only way of communicating what she's feeling. But she says that she can't be bought with a ring. Bram was seriously offended and hurt by that accusation that like he would try to give her this ring to buy her, to persuade her to stay He's giving it to her because he loves her and he wants her to have it. He realizes that he's never going to love another woman the way that he loves Charlotte and that he would rather her have his grandmother's ring than anybody else. But Charlotte's saying, no, your wife needs to have this ring. And if I'm not going to be that person, then you need to take it back. So I find this whole exchange of the ring a real symbol of their relationship, like it's a physical embodiment and it kind of changes hands And it is a thing and then it's not a thing and then she wishes it was a thing and then it becomes a thing again. So it really is just this back and forth. It's a very physical reminder of their relationship and the uncertainty of that relationship throughout most of this book. And I also found it extremely heartbreaking that at the end, whenever she leaves, he tries to give her the ring again and she says, I don't need a ring to remember you. It's so sad. Talk about their their conflict over the assassination a little bit because Bram's pissed that Charlotte wouldn't take him back to save the president and that she doesn't understand him. And yeah, damn it, she doesn't understand him. Like, and he doesn't understand her. And, you know, he makes the argument. He's like, I don't give a damn about what happens in the future. You're telling me that my friend and my boss and my president are about to be assassinated and you're asking me to stand by and do nothing? I literally could not care less. And he asks her a very good question. He says, do you believe marble is an adequate substitute for a person's life? because I don't. And I thought that is the most ironic question to ask a surgeon. And I think in a lot of ways it made Charlotte pause because he's trying to do the exact same thing that she would try to do in any other type of circumstance to save a person's life at all costs. I don't think she really thought about it until he said that to her. And then she was like, okay. And so by the time the assassination actually rolls around, even though Charlotte would never, ever in a million years admit it to Bram, she's actually kind of hoping that he succeeds. Because I think a part of her also wonders what that world would look like if Lincoln had survived and all of his plans for reconstruction and all of that had been implemented. Would he have had this glorious second term? Or would he have been impeached for exceeding his constitutional authority? Like, what would have happened? And yeah, there's a very real possibility that something bad could have happened and his reputation could have been tarnished. But there's also this unbelievable potential for so many great things to happen as well. So I think that she knows it would be better for Bram if he succeeded. And she's starting to wonder if it would be better for the country as well if Bram succeeded. But, you know, obviously, she picked her mountain to die on and she's uh, she's not going to admit to Bram that she hopes he succeeds at all. 
after Bram fails and he kind of goes into mourning for the president, he really falls deep into depression and contemplates suicide. He locks himself in his room, drinks himself into a stupor and contemplates suicide. When Charlotte realizes that it's that bad, it scares her. Like I don't think she realized it was that bad. Like She knew he was drinking, but she had no idea that he had a gun. I was shocked, honestly. But whenever you think about it and you think about Bram's purpose in life and that he failed at the one thing that he really felt like he should succeed at, he worked at it and he tried so hard and he put himself in harm's way so many times in the hopes of reaching this one goal and failed. How do you deal with that failure? How do you reconcile that part of you that feels like there's something that you should have been able to do and that in your eyes the greatest person that ever lived is now dead and that rests solely on your shoulders like how how do you deal with that as a person on top of the fact of grieving for your friend it's not just this this grand picture in the scope of history how would i succeed or fail it's i literally let my friend die because i i couldn't stop it that's one of the most painful hurdles that Bram has to overcome is realizing that this was the verdict of history and whether he was alive or not, it happened and it was going to happen. He was going to have to live with it. Of course, in the original version of history before Charlotte and Jack got involved, he wasn't going to have to deal with it because he died at Chimborazo, but he survived and he had to live. And I think that is one of his biggest journeys over the course of this book is learning to live with it and being a better person for it and discovering that living your life isn't a crime. Learning to laugh through the tears, I guess, is is an extremely deep portion of this of this book and the character journeys that we go through and especially as we go into next week's topics and, and Charlotte's struggle with all of that. Um, that's definitely something that is brought up quite a bit. I'm going to end this discussion on one interesting character parallel that I found. It's kind of kind of lighthearted. <laughs> so I guess that it's a better discussion to end on than the heaviness that is uh, that last bit. So one thing that I thought was so cool. After Bram's rescue from Castle Thunder and Jack and Bram come back to the Van Loo mansion and find out that Charlotte is missing. There are two key things that happen here. In the previous scene, when Charlotte's getting fed up waiting on them and realizes that they're going after the Confederate gold, she makes a couple of really quick deductions. She says, what work could Bram have been doing for Lincoln? Elizabeth kept Grant apprised of what was happening in the city. What else would be of interest? A light flashed on in Charlotte's brain with the intensity of a 200 watt bulb, the treasury, the Confederacy gold. So she's making all of these deductions in her head and that's how she comes to realize that Bram is actually trying to find the Confederate treasury. In a similar fashion when they get back to the Van Loo mansion, Jack and Bram. Bram says if she reached the depot and discovered the train gone, what would she do then? She'd come back unless, and then ask, is there a hospital in the path of the fire or an influx of wounded, a place where the injured are gathered for medical care? And Jack says, well, there's this one thing, like, I guess there was a a depot of soldiers that caught on fire or whatever. And Bram's like, well, that, you know, kind of dismisses it. And he was like, well, it was kind of a place where all the wounded were. And they immediately know that that's where she was. But then after all of this, when they get back to the mansion, Charlotte asks, how did you find me? And 
Jack says, elementary, my dear Watson, which just tickled my fancy because I took a class in college called Cloak and Dagger. One of like our sections in the course focused heavily on Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle. And so one of the big quotes from Sherlock Holmes and one of the things that we really studied as far as a overarching theme in Conan Doyle's books was the quote, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So if you eliminate all the avenues that are completely impossible, whatever remains, whether it makes sense or not, has to be the answer. And so I love that that kind of idea of mystery solving combined with elementary, my dear Watson, on Jack's part. It was just perfect. It was so perfect. So I had to include it with you guys. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up today's conversation on roughly parts one and part two. Next week's should be a little bit shorter. Um, I have less pages of notes, so it will definitely be shorter than what we're looking at now. So I'll join you next week for part two of the Sapphire Brooch at 4 p.m. again, Eastern time, and I'll chat to you later. Bye! <laughs>